For those of you who've been looking for Season 1 of Solarpunk Presence, but haven't been able to find it, here it is. Originally, it was published as part of Solarpunk Magazine's Solarpunk Futures podcast. We're reposting our episodes on our site to make them easier for you to listen to if you didn't catch them the first time. We hope you enjoy them. Also, don't forget to support us by spreading the word about Solarpunk Presence, writing us a review, or subscribing to our Patreon at patreon.com slash solarpunkpresence. Welcome to Solarpunk Presence, the companion podcast to Solarpunk Futures. Hosted by Solarpunk Magazine nonfiction editors extraordinaire Ariel Kroon and Christina Della Rocha. Ariel and I will be using this companion podcast to Solarpunk Futures to explore Solarpunk goings on in the world today. We'll be interviewing all sorts of interesting people who are doing work in the here and now that will help us get to a Solarpunk future. And we'll be talking to each other about the visions of a sustainable, equitable future integral to solar punk, and about issues we're curious about within the movement or genre, or whatever it is you want to call solar punk. Welcome to episode five. So today I will be talking to Dr. Jade Roberts, a senior lecturer, which uh, for the uh, U.S. people out there is an assistant professor um, in the Faculty of Arts, Design and Architecture at the University of New South Wales, Sydney in Australia. And uh, she is my guru of urban planning. Um, She's done all sorts of great research on how cities grow. And I'm hoping we can talk today about you know, Solarpunk has all these dreams of, of changing our cities so that they're perfect to live in, so that they're resilient against climate change, so they're good for people. And it's good to try to figure out how we could actually take these horrible messes of cities that we live in at the present and turn them into something sustainable and wonderful to live in. So good morning, Jade. How are good you morning. doing? Not bad, not bad. So let's talk about cities. Let's talk about the city of your dreams. What would the city of your dreams look like? Oh, goodness. So I'll start first with a a caveat. And that is because I come from a design background in in my undergrad. And then I moved on to look at politics and Asia more generally. In the undergrad education, we talk about the ideal or we have the utopia. And it's really fun to design the utopia. But as I've gone on to study cities and neighborhoods, I'm more focused on how to help foster environments that are enlivening, that are supportive. So I don't tend to think of the ideal, but what is helpful in the way that people live in that particular place. What does an enlivening environment look like? So this one, I can actually go universal. I think an enlivening environment, regardless of which part of the world you're located in, whether it's a place in what some people call the developing countries, some people call the global south, some older folks call the third world, right? Even in those, an enlivening environment is one in which families, people, children, can actually have opportunities to meet each other, 
to come come to know each other and help each other when the need arises. I think that's true for LA where I grew up, Seattle where I lived for 10 years and here in Sydney for sure. The, I moved to a neighborhood where people actually recognize each other when you pass each other on the street. In my previous neighborhood, people were like, they would avert their eyes, right? So there's this sense of distance and alienation that is not helpful in your everyday situation. So an enlivening environment needs to be one where there's space for casual encounters via walking and spaces where people can run, can jump around, can dance and sing if they want to. So a big enough space. So like sidewalks and parks or streets that you don't have much traffic on. Yeah, those are enlivening spaces. But but Um, what do you do if people don't look at each other? I know. Oh, my goodness. Um, I mean, can you can it can the design of a city fix that? The design of a city has the potential to do that if at the neighborhood level, that space is there to make the make it a potential. But then at a district or township scale, or, you know, in the U.S., it would be like, I don't know, um, what's below Torrance? I think in the U.S., it's just Torrance. Oh, no, north, south, east, west. Like if you break it up at that scale, you would need to design public transportation and routes of access shopping like you know groceries and pharmacies schools so that there's an incentive to walk around and traverse that limited scale of a neighborhood and that so that's another second factor but in our world with people moving around so much with migration being such a huge factor it's really hard you know if a family only lives in an area for four years and moves to another country there isn't enough time to build those relationships. Given the mobility in our world today, you have to put in programming. So you could have a sidewalk and you could have a park, but then the city or the district has to be like, all right, we have XYZ events planned throughout the year, like once a month or something. And that kind of pulling people together to get them to come to the park for something can help. Well, okay, so so two comments here. One is for everyone listening. Torrance, in case you've never heard of it, like 99.99% of people on earth, um, is the, the town that Jade and I grew up in, low those many years ago. It, you, you may have heard of Torrance, actually, if, if you read or watched Unbroken, because um, oh, what was his name? The Torrance Tornado fellow. Embarrassingly, I don't, his, I'm blanking on, on his name, Zamperini. Zamperini was from Torrance. Yeah, I just went past the Zamperini field this morning, the little airport they've named uh-huh. after him. Um, second comment I have completely forgotten about now. No, uh, it was about the programming. I think I was thinking about schools and how good schools are at creating community because you've got parents who join the PTA, the Parent Teacher Association, or they've got their kids in, enrolled in sports. So they're playing like soccer or something like that. Um, is, and that, I mean, that is very much the experience I had as I was growing up here in, in Torrance. And I saw that my mother at least became, you know, met a lot of other mothers and um, knew, you know, it was like this little soap opera she became embroiled in for the years that my brother and I were in school. And it, is that a universal thing? I would say so. And I'm glad you brought that up. Schools can be such centers of community. And in the, well, in California, I can't speak for all of America, but California and Washington State. What is so lovely about schools is that 
it is clear when the government builds them, they are meant as a public service. So they have tracks, they have tennis courts, they have grounds that are accessible even on weekends. That is not true here. Yeah. It drives me crazy. Yeah, when I lived in England, it was not true there either. And I was really like, what? You can't go run on the track? You can't go, yeah. you can't, ah, oh, you can't play on the soccer field? Sorry, football field. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, w- is, I was also It is a waste that. of space. Yeah, because if you're going to put in the, the tax dollars to build this thing and maintain it, then it's a public service and it should be open. I'd be, if I could break that rule here, I would. Yeah, <laughs> but you know what? Open. So I, you know, I've been, I've been going for, I'm visiting my parents right now. So I'm, I'm back in Torrance. Um, and I've been going for runs a couple of days a week in the morning. And I realized the school grounds are locked now. Right? Because of this school shootings stuff. Okay, I have to break in here and say that I was wrong. I've since learned that the school gates are only locked when school is in session. And the reason for this isn't due to fear of a mass shooting, but because a couple of years ago, someone walked onto an elementary school campus and sexually assaulted a student in the middle of the day. Um, And ever since then, the gates have been locked during school hours as per district policy. Okay, and now back to our conversation. That So there are people who, by carrying out these unspeakable acts of violence toward children, are, are yeah, all, obviously also injuring the community, but also then ruining this, this public service um, that the government is providing, not just to the children and to the families of the children, but to the entire community, to the neighborhoods that coalesce around these schools. The social trauma or the wounds that gun violence have created in America are severe. And I haven't been back in the States for a long time, so I can't speak from firsthand experience. Oh, well, everybody's angry here right now about everything. (laughs) It's 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 very strange to come back if you live outside. It's not like it used to be. Ah, But on the other hand, you know, you can still go for a walk in the morning and and you see people on the sidewalks and they smile and they say hi. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so there's something there about recognizing that there are shared spaces, whether they are public space or commons or just, well, there are very few unprogrammed spaces in America. Um, But that volume, you know, if we think just in terms of materiality, like that opening has potential and we can, we can design them well and we can make sure that they are connected. So like the school now being locked, right? You could have beautiful potential public space segregated in any way, whether through a fence or through social norms or through class. You know, some schools look all fancy, some schools look all derelict. So if those inhibit entry and exploration, then we are losing out on the potential of connection and community. Those are the things that I, like if I worked for the city, I would be pushing all the time, opening them up. Do cities have a goal of being cohesive to have these clusters of communities in them? Is this a concern that cities have? Yeah, one of the good things about urban planning is around, oh, I think 18 something. I don't remember the dates now, but the idea of trying to plan the whole city came out of public health concerns because people were sick, there were areas that weren't getting proper water, you know, or there's stagnant water or whatever. 
So both in the UK and in the US, it was medical doctors who first called out this problem and said, look, we have to do better. We have to make sure that these environments are hygienic. And through that, intellectuals, you know, often the elite came together to try and create rational plans to, to create a healthy living environment for people. And during that period in, we'll call it urban history, there were lots of different leaders or thinkers, and some of them even women, although they were quite conservative, looking at how to create better lives. You know, what would why? it take? Mm. Why were they doing this? It's just that what was their personal motivation to create better lives among the riffraff? It was partly, so in the, the longer term, it was having witnessed the, really the environmental destruction caused by industrialization. And then as urban and urbanization occurred, not just through factories and things like that, people recognized that their lives were changing, their ways of living were changing. So part of it was conservative, like how do I keep my idyllic life? And, and actually suburbanization happened in the UK during that time with women saying, no, we have to take our kids out of these dirty, filthy places and put them in the countryside. And the father can go into work and come home. And there's this idea of a perfect home and a perfect wife. So these shifts compelled urban residents to consider what was happening and how they wanted to shape their cities because they were losing something. Okay. So do you think yeah. that we're on the verge of or in the midst of another big shift? Oh, I wish. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> because that would be interesting or? Because it's necessary. But for at least the past 20 or more years, there have been clear research and experts saying, look, we can't all have our quarter acre lot. That is not sustainable. Stop it. We can't keep building freeways. That does not help. Stop it. But this ideal of a, well, okay, sorry, I should, I should qualify that. Now I'm speaking about the U.S. and Australia. I'm not talking about Europe. In the U.S. and Australia, this, this dream of what a good life is includes a single home, you know, a detached house with a yard and a car and the quote-unquote freedom to do whatever you want. That dream is really hard to reshape. People are really stubborn about it. So... Even with people who finish their undergrads are thoughtful, interesting, and look at history, they are very attached to the low-rise <laughs> single-family home. So it seems like, at least in Australia and Seattle and parts of California, it hasn't hit critical yet. People haven't gone like, oh my gosh, I don't know why it hasn't in California. I should have hit a long time ago. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so the, the so the the problem with the the detached house and the car and the yard and is I imagine it's ma it's manifold, right? So that's you're isolated, you're not part of a community, except when you're yeah. duking it out with the other members of the PTA. Um, it's mm -hmm. also environmentally completely unsustainable. Completely, yeah. The costs are so many. So as you've already said, the community costs, right? The social costs, the sense of disconnection. Then the environmental costs are at many levels. One infrastructure, if you think about the 
roads that have to be maintained, the pipes that have to be put in, the maintenance of the pipes, the, where the water is sourced, all of those costs are generally hidden from us. Like it can, it's, it's underground and it doesn't rise to our consciousness until there's a drought or something. But even when oh, that happens- I can tell you that it has not risen to the consciousness <laughs> here. In the, they've been oh, in the no. depths of a mega drought. The neighbors still water oh. the lawn for two or three hours a day. Get out. Oh, it just, it's infuriating. Oh. Um, yeah. So how do you, I mean, so, so if you take a city like Los Angeles, and I've spent the last 20 years coming back to visit my parents and watching it creep further out into the desert, paving over all of this beautiful- Ah, it's just beautiful environment. And so you can have like Panda Express and huge strip malls and condos and houses and, and all of this kind of yeah. stuff. But so how do you transform that back into something that makes more sense? Is that even possible? Well, it takes tremendous political will. And I don't know that that's on the horizon. I mean, I'm hoping California just keeps going on the sustainability front and takes bolder steps you would have to put in policy that punishes developers for such blanket development, right? Because right now it's not a punishment, it's incentivized. I don't know the exact policy in dollars, but generally when you come in and you buy a piece of property and you develop it, you don't have to pay for the infrastructure costs. So as the company, I don't pay for the infrastructure. The okay. government somehow- That's crazy. Whatever. Wow. <laughs> right? And you generally can get around it by saying, well, I'm going to put in this market center, you know, with a big supermarket and some restaurants and a gym and, you know, whatever, whatever's hip in California right now. And that's supposed to create a revenue source for the city because the city wants commercial businesses to get money to sustain itself. And that's good. The city needs it. So right now, there's no punishment for that kind of development. As far as I know, I'm not up to date on California mm -hmm. laws. So that needs to be changed. But given the recurrent economic crises that we've gone through, it's really hard for a city to be like, I'm going to punish the developer <laughs> because you got to look at how much revenue you're bringing in to support your city. So it needs to be a policy shift. Well, and the people I've, have to yeah. want it as well, right? The residents have to want it. In your experience as a, as a someone who studies this and you've traveled over the world and done all sorts of research, um, yeah, I guess you don't really call it field research if you're in a city, do you? Um, <laughs> do, I do because I do ethnographic work, so it's still okay. field work. So yeah. have, you, have you ever seen a neighborhood or a city or whatever decide, up, oh, we're going down the wrong path and change course? You can look for cities where the mayor or the council says you have to put in better public transit. So if you see light rail or subways coming in, then they've caught on like, oh, wait, something's wrong here. We got to make it so that there's publicly accessible transit that connects different neighborhoods together. When you have that kind of hard infrastructure, you're incentivizing at least housing development. No, not, not just housing, housing and commercial development along the rails because they're accessible. You have more customers, right? So you can set the hard infrastructure to make people come closer. And it's, it has great success stories in like Hong Kong, in Taiwan, 
Well, tell us about the yeah. success story in Taiwan. I don't know very much about Taiwan. So, mm. well, everybody should visit. It is an amazing transformation that I got to observe going back to Taiwan. So I grew up in in LA, but my family's from Taiwan, so I would visit every now and then. And what is most impressive to me about Taiwan, and in particular Taipei, is how the rise of democratic culture enabled changes in the city that create this environment where it's a very dense city. It's like, you know, people everywhere all the time, but people are conscientious of each other and actually help when something goes wrong. Okay. Yeah, and, and Taiwan is incredibly steep as well. Is that correct, or am I confused? There are parts of uh, there's a mountain range range on the east side, and then in the basically an alluvial plain and two parts. So most of the settlement is in the flatter areas. So but Taipei a, is a basin. Okay, but so you have a very limited amount of space in which you have to pack an awful lot of people. So what is, <laughs> what is the transformation that city underwent then? Hmm. So with democracy being established in the 80s, because it was martial law before then, and at the same time, Taiwan was going through an economic growth period. So money was there. Because even if democracy were there and there was no funding, it would be hard to make all of these things happen. The government became much more responsive to the people, and the people were much more vocal about what they wanted. An extensive underground subway system was established. Many, many large parks were created that are beautiful. This subway system is great and it enables you to go to most places in the city like you can, i could walk to any subway station in about 10 minutes tops from anywhere and go where i want it's funded by the government so the fare is really low it's very accessible for people even with mobility issues and the by building these subways Developers saw the opportunity. The government was also pushing it. There's a thing called transit-oriented design. And so when cities pursue transit-oriented design, then they say, okay, I'm putting in the rail and there's this property around it. I'm opening it up to a bid, right? You come and you bid. And this is what we expect. We need you to put in a mix of housing. We need you to put in commercial. We need you to put in cultural. We need to put in health services so that there are these pods of you know, daily life needs close to the rail. And that encourages housing development. So that's been quite successful. Some of it's a little bit pricey. So friends in Taiwan will be like, look, most of us can't afford that. Um, so that's, that is an ongoing issue for most cities where you, you need to figure out the economics of new development and how to make sure that even the poor are served by the city. Another aspect that's been successful is how the city saw these rails and stations as a form of civic expression. So some stations are beautiful. So creating this environment and, and having some public service announcements like this is how you should behave on the subway. Oh, really? You, know, you shouldn't. Yeah, you should. Always make sure to get up if a pregnant lady or an older person comes. Oh, so, so more that, than know, just don't leave your bag unattended or we will blow it up for you. 
You never hear that on the subway. Oh, okay. and the subway makes announcements in three languages. So in standard, in Mandarin, mm-hmm. which is the actually maybe it's not a, the official national tongue anymore. It used to be in Taiwanese, which is a Minan, which comes in the southern part of China in Fujian province, and in Hakka, which is another language. But it's from the southern part of China because those are the languages that a lot of people speak. So it's really cool to ride the subway and just listen to those because I don't speak Hakka, but I speak Mandarin and Taiwanese. So I'm like, oh, what is that saying in Hakka? Right? That's a that's a recognition of who constitutes your public, your citizenry. So that I like very much. Um, what else has Taipei done well? There's just a sense of civic pride because the city put in so much effort and money to create better infrastructure and better public spaces. Okay, so if you had advice for people, just people, not necessarily mm. people who are on the city council or or in, or are employed by the city, but people who live in the city, if you had advice for them for how they could push for for big changes, what mm-hmm. would it, what advice would you give them? what one is a it's an uphill battle it's like sisyphus (laughs) but there are proven strategies so there's a book by a guy in seattle about participatory design and he was just your everyday person and did not like what the city was doing and really pushed the city to work with local residents to improve parks so in seattle when the city wants to improve a park, you they have to have a series of, you can say consultation. I don't like that word because it can be so one-sided, but the city has to consult with the local residents. And you, you have workshops, you, have, you can have a participatory design event. So push for that. Push. Well, one, first you have to know what's happening. So you have to keep up with like, you know, notices about new development. Because in America, most likely, definitely in Europe and in Australia, if a piece of property is going to be developed, there's a sign mm-hmm. on there saying this is going to happen. It's open for comments. In Seattle, there's always a meeting and just show up and ask questions and then ask to be included in the process. Some cities are better and allow for its citizenry to get to the point of contributing to the decision making. That's rare. Mostly you get to have input and then a committee gets to decide. And that can be frustrating. You might feel like, look, I went to all these meetings and I said X, Y, and Z, but in the, e- in the end, the decision had nothing to do with what I said. But it takes time to push the council members to the, the spectrum, to the point in the spectrum wherein you have some say in the decision making. And by being aware and showing up and having a diversity of participants, one can push back against NIMBYism. So if, if it's a wealthier neighborhood, there often is a sense of protecting my property value and my environment. And so there will be resistance. But okay, but this is interesting because I think when I look at the I don't know what the proper the proper modern term for it is the Western world, the Western democracies. We've all gotten very lazy and we think you show up to vote if you do that at all. And that's democracy. But what you're talking about is really democracy. This is really this where you have to be an active participant in things like city council meetings and planning city planning meetings and 
you have to take that time and make that effort. You have to bring your ideas. You have to, yeah, it's not just standing on the street and waving a protest sign, but it's actually actively participating in the design of your own city, the refurbishment of your own city. We've forgotten that. We've forgotten that you yes. have to, that it's, yeah, fight's not the right word, but on some level it's fight. Um, yeah. Fight for these things to, and to, to have a vision of how you would like to live in your democracy and get other people to listen to it. And, and also <laughs> to listen to other people's ideas and then work together towards something. And that there are yeah. these channels there to do it. Yeah, and actually cities, as far as I know, you know, so I don't look at every city everywhere, but one of the ongoing frustrations of city councils and people who work in the city is, look, we're trying to reach out to the people who live around here and they don't show up. So communication is a major challenge in urban planning. Like how do we communicate in a way that people actually notice and would say something? Because usually people don't notice, then you build something and then people are pissed off. <laughs> it's like, well, but we tried. We tried to say something was coming. That one, you know, who knows how to fix it, but the pace of our lives, the, the neoliberal world order wherein we are strongly pushed, if not constrained, by the work life that takes so many of our hours, makes both parents work. So who's going to find the time? And it's like the, we've, once the democracy was set, it's like it's supposed to be on autopilot because in the, the modernist, rational mindset, you create a structure, you create a system, and it's supposed to be efficient. It's supposed to just work. Well, it doesn't. <laughs> it doesn't just work. And if we just let it run, we I think I would say that's part of the problem. We let it run. You know, it's more rational. It's more efficient. We focus on the dollars and the quantifiable. And if the spreadsheet all looks okay, there it is. It's working. We're not monitoring it. We're not questioning the really mechanistic logic of these systems. Oh, I think so. there are, I think most of us just don't even realize that there are mechanisms there, right? It's all done by them. It's all handled by the man or the evil electric company and the incompetent this. And, you know, you don't really get the feeling that if you show up at a city planning meeting, that your input would count for anything, right? Or you see the people who show up and they block everything, the NIMBYs, as you say, and then it's easy, I think, to get very cynical about the process. But yeah, maybe yeah. we should all be telling each other, hey, we need to do more. And we need yeah. to, because we, we do have the power to, to participate in this process of planning the changes in our cities or planning the new developments in our cities. And my voice is important. And, and my community, I would like my community to be a great place where we all yeah, not get along because, you know, neighbors, but um, <laughs> where it's a nice place to live for as many yeah. people as possible. Yeah. And yeah. So maybe we should be reminding each other, this is an, a, a key part of democracy. And it's a yeah. privilege as well, because there's plenty of parts of the world where you have no say in this at all. Yeah. Yeah. And it is through that level of responsibility, really, and commitment that we live in democracies. Some people in the past really <laughs> duped it out and tried to set up laws and policies as the foundation of how we live. But the foundation wears out. 
So we can't just keep eating away at it. We need to understand how that was built, right? So if we show up at a council meeting, it's not just to be pissed off that my neighbor's building four stories taller than mine and blocking my light, but there should be some homework. Like, okay, this is how this works here. You know, do some reading, read about your city, read about the policies rather than just reacting to protect your own self-interest. Uh, but it's, it's hard to read policy because it's it so, is. it's impenetrable. And that also maybe needs to change. There has been some shifts. So for those who are interested, the city of Chicago did this great initiative, not perfect, but great. So the Institute of Architecture there and people in the city and some young kids drew a comic book talking about urban planning. And it's based on Daniel Burnham's work for the World Exposition in whatever, whatever, 19 something, something, way back. Yeah, 1928 or something like that. Yeah, yeah, right. Wrong. Sorry, here I am breaking in again to say that I was wrong again. The World's Columbian Exposition also known as the Chicago World's Fair, whose director of works was this urban designer named Daniel Burnham, was held in 1893. What I was thinking of was the next Chicago World's Fair, and I was also wrong about that. That was in 1933. So, okay, and now back to the conversation. So he was like, there are no small plans, and he really pushed for his vision of a better city. That vision is problematic, but the me message in the comic book is, all of us, even you kids, right? The target audience is school children. You, even you kids can have a voice in urban planning. And this is how it can be done. So there are little initiatives like that. So the comic book came out probably five years ago. And there's take up among school children. Um, I haven't gone back to look at, you know, like post event surveys or anything like that. And that's a hard part with any research, particularly in urban planning or in architecture, anything where it's more applied, it's really hard to get funding for the post, mm -hmm. like the post-occupancy research or the post-project evaluation. There's almost no dollars. And so then like, well, who's gonna go back? But there was there was interest among school children. No. Oh, okay. And I think that yeah, it's it's a it's a viable and important avenue to keep on okay but i like this idea yeah. that you can that if you want to get your fellow citizens to band together and and start working on rebuilding your neighborhood or the city and to make it into a more livable environment then um, you can come together and create a, a graphic novel or a comic book and get it printed or even just make a pdf out of it send it to all your neighbors and see what happens yeah, And then yeah. this strengthens your democracy and ties your community together. This all sounds wonderful. I mean, obviously, it's this, this is the rosy pink. This is looking at it with very with rose tinted goggles, but it's kind of a nice idea. Full of hope. It is. Yeah. And if, if lots and lots of people do this, then there is this momentum. You know, if it's just you and me, you in Germany, me in Sydney, well, it's not going to do anything. But if I get one person in every here it's called district in every district to work with me to draw this comic book and we distribute it you know in the five block area that we live in there will be some kind of little tremor some kind of response because the possibility becomes evident so you know there's been a lot of grassroots work like this throughout decades 
that have made a difference at the local level and at times filtered up to the national level at yeah. times. <laughs> yeah, well, national is a big level, yeah. especially in a really big yeah. country. But okay, so I guess for our listeners, solar punks out there, you have your homework, um, get to it. <laughs> And you don't have to just design big buildings full of solar panels. It can also be little parks and and yeah. subway systems and trams and even better bus lines. Okay. Yes. I think I've eaten up quite a lot of your time this morning. I appreciate your taking the time to talk to us about urban planning and how people can perhaps change their cities for the better. And I guess I shall now think about joining the city council planning meeting, um, <laughs> exercising... Uh, Strengthening yeah, democracy yeah. through participation. You have to be very, very patient, and <laughs> but in the long run, it'll be good. And that was episode five. Thank you for listening, and I hope you've been inspired now to go out and start working on making your city a better place to live. Thank you for listening to Solarpunk Presence, a series embedded within the Solarpunk Futures podcast. Written, hosted, and produced by Christina Della Rocha and Ariel Kroon. This podcast is a part of Solarpunk Magazine, which is published by Android Press, which is located on Kalapuya Ulihi, the traditional indigenous homeland of the Kalapuya people. Today, descendants are citizens of the Confederated Tribes of Grand Ronde Community of Oregon and the Confederated Tribes of the Silets Indians of Oregon. The opening and closing music for Solarpunk Presence is Water Cooler Gang by Monkey Warhol and is available for use under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License. So, thank you again for listening, and until the next episode, stay Solarpunk. Solarpunk.